Well, friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. On Thursday night, he knelt at his disciples' feet. On Friday, he was lifted up on a Roman cross. On Saturday, he lay in an empty tomb. And now, on Sunday, he walks in the garden of a new creation. See, John declares from the very beginning of his gospel with this obvious allusion to Genesis 1, in the beginning, that his gospel is going to be a gospel about the new creation in Jesus. And in chapter 20, he makes the same point by stressing at the very beginning of verse 1 that Easter was on the first day of the week. On the sixth day of the creation narrative, humankind was created in the divine image, the image of God. On the sixth day of Jesus' final week, according to the Gospel of John, Pilate publicly declares, behold the man. In other words, Jesus is the true divine image, what humanity was intended to be, John said. In the creation narrative, on the seventh day, the creator rests from his work. And in John, the seventh day is when Jesus rests in the tomb. Now, in the creation narrative, there is no eighth day. But in John, there is. Easter, for John, marks the eighth day. It is the start of the new creation. In other words, John is trying to tell us something really simple here, but profoundly earth-shattering. That in the crucified and risen Christ... The light and the life of the new creation has finally broken into the darkness and death of the old creation. A new day has literally dawned. And we are told that this long-awaited new day, this long-awaited new creation is not some ethereal, vague, ghostly, pie-in-the-sky reality. No, it's, it's concrete and it's personal. This new creation has a human face and a human body, and speaks with a human voice. No doubt, the resurrection is a reality altogether beyond our rational and imaginative comprehension. <laughs> we cannot conceive of it. And yet it is experienced, John is telling us, in the detailed particularities and circumstances and stories of ordinary human life. Like the risen Lord comes to Mary in her grief. He comes to the disciples in their fear. He comes to Thomas in his doubt. Easter, in part, is about experiencing resurrection life where we least expect to experience it and where we most need to experience it. It's about coming to know in particular times and in particular places and in particular ways that he is alive and he reigns and he is with us. In our gospel reading this morning, it's the particular and personal experience of grief, of loss, of lament to which he draws near. It's that experience of broken dreams and dashed hopes, of, of the disorientation that comes when life as you've always known it, or at least as you've wanted to know it, comes to an abrupt and unwelcome and unexpected end. The dawn of a new creation breaks into the world as Mary goes to grieve at the grave of her dear friend and teacher. And I cannot but help, help but think of how many in our country and our world know exactly what that's like today. Only worse, many who grieve today in our country do it without the privilege of going to a physical gravesite. They grieve alone, 
often in the privacy of their own home. And in our story, it's in that atmosphere, that atmosphere of grieving alone, that a sudden jolt of energy interrupts. Mary discovers to her surprise that the stone has been taken away from the tomb at which she grieves. And instead of joy at first, sheer panic sets in. I mean, the pace of the narrative feels like a, a, a frantic frenzy settles in, and there's people running everywhere. Mary runs to get Simon Peter and the other disciple, i.e. John. And when Simon and John hear about it, they, they run to the tomb as quickly as they can. And then we're told three times what it is that they see when they peer inside the tomb. Verses 5 to 8. And stooping in, he, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. You can imagine John still trying to catch his breath from his little race with Peter. And then Simon Peter comes, and following him, he goes into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there too, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, he's, we're told. Not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Notice the detail. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just in case any of us have forgotten that John won the race, he goes in and he saw and he believed. You see, this frantic frenzy all of a sudden comes to a place of calm and order as the disciples peer into the empty tomb and realize that it's not a haphazard site of burglary, but it's a peaceful sight, a peaceful scene of nicely folded laundry. It's as if someone has calmly and carefully taken off their clothes, folded them, and put them away where they belong. Every parent's dream come true. After all this commotion, all this emotional upheaval, all this running and racing, the whole focal point of this first Easter scene seems to be on folded laundry. Why? Why linen cloths? That's the question I keep asking myself. Why is this so important? Well, one of the hints comes with the answer to this question. What is the only other time in the Gospel of John, other than Jesus' burial, when linen cloths are mentioned? You see, John loves doing this evocative sort of thing with words. When Jesus was, when G Jesus invited Peter to gather around a charcoal fire and ask him if he loves him, it evokes that image of Peter being around a charcoal fire and denying Jesus. And so it's as if P Jesus is restoring Peter. And here, John is doing a similar sort of thing. The only other time when linen cloths are mentioned is when G Lazarus comes out of the grave. We are told that when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, Lazarus's face is still wrapped in a linen cloth, and his body is still wrapped in a linen cloth. Now, these cloths were part of the traditional Jewish custom of embalming dead bodies for burial. You would honor a person by embalming their body with cloths and spices after it had been washed. And so they took on this poignant cultural symbolism of mortality and fragility and vulnerability. In drawing our attention to the cloths folded in the tomb, 
John is drawing our attention to the fundamental difference between Lazarus's resurrection and Jesus's resurrection. Lazarus came out of the tomb with burial cloths still on, but Jesus left those burial clothes behind. Lazarus came back to life as you and I now still experience it, subject to the sting of death and decay and disease. But Jesus went through death and came out the other side and entered into life beyond death and death, death and decay and disease. Lazarus came back to life again, but he died again. Jesus came back to life again, never to die again. You see what John's trying to show us? <laughs> By pointing to the folded clothes, he's telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus has no need for burial clothes anymore. The symbol of death is the only thing left in the tomb on this Easter Sunday morning. I cannot help but think of John Donne, death be not proud. And that's what our world needs to hear today is that in the face of death, death has no reason to be proud. Because Jesus has left it in the grave. You see, the point of Easter is that death is shown to have no ultimate power over this one human being. And the point of Easter is that death will have no ultimate power over any other human being who is connected to this one human being. In a Times Magazine article entitled Death Be Not a Stranger, which as you can tell is kind of a poetic, ironic play on John Donne's poem, Death Be Not Proud. Pico Iyer once argued that death is the only reality that never lets you down. And he goes on to say, it is more certain than love and more reliable than health. That's not a very hopeful view on life. <laughs> but while I think Pico is ultimately wrong, I, I do think he names something that we are becoming painfully reminded of and aware of in recent days. And that's just of the fragility and, and vulnerability of human life. None of us is beyond the grip of death. Like it may be coronavirus and cancer and cardiac arrest like in the present, or it may be the, the peaceful con kind of conclusion of a life well lived. But, but the reality is, is that every one of us and every person we know and every person we love will eventually have to walk through death. And we are going to have to walk with others through the process of dying. I've been thinking this week that maybe one of the significant aspects of the church's ministry to the world right now will be teaching people how to die well and walking graciously and patiently with people through that painful process of death. Maybe part of our mission will then be teaching people how to lament death and how to grieve it and how to graciously and patiently walk with people through the painful process of grief. You see, Easter joy is not a joy that shies away from the concrete realities of life in exchange for some kind of overly sentimentalized wish dream. <laughs> Sorry, Easter bunnies, 
Sorry, Easter eggs, but today's not your day. Easter joy is grounded in the fact that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man from Nazareth was so filled with all the fullness and power of God that he unwrapped himself in his own tomb. He folded his own burial cloths. He left them in a tomb to which he would never return, declaring to all people of every age that life, not death, is the final word. Sorry, Pico, you were wrong. (laughs) Behold, says Jesus, I make all things new. Behold, I am the resurrection and the life. Behold, whoever believes in me, though he die, and die he will, yet shall he live. I think that's the hope that was impressed upon the Apostle Peter as he stooped down and peered into the tomb that Easter morning. I think it was because the first letter that we have in the Bible where he is the author, he starts with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I just picture Peter writing those words to his flock with the images of the folded clothes in the tomb on his mind. Living hope. But then Peter goes on to add this. In this hope you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. See, I think Peter gets John chapter 20. He's seen the folded cloths, but he's also seen Mary weeping next to the grave. Resurrection, hope, and joy does not eradicate weeping in this life. Mary still stands outside the empty tomb and she's weeping. And we've all been there before. We know what it's like. Our friends and our neighbors know what it's like to shed those tears that well up from deep within and over which we have no control. Jesus knows what it's like. When people dear die to us, we we cannot help but cry and cry a lot. Mary's emotion is this symbolic representation, this concrete incarnation of the emotion of the world in the presence of the overwhelming cruelty of death. It's a representation and incarnation of that unquenchable longing for the presence of one who is no longer present. See, resurrection, hope, and joy does not eradicate weeping in this life, but it does surround it, and it does enter into it. Let me explain those two quickly. Resurrection surrounds or circumscribes the weeping and the grief that we experience. In other words, it sets limits to it. It says that there will be a day when there is no more weeping, so it's okay to weep but know that your weeping has a shelf life, an expiration date. I have this wonderful little book. It's probably my favorite children's book at the, at the moment. Um, I've been reading with my daughter. It's called Goodbye to Goodbyes. And I recommend anybody, whether you're young or old, to buy this book and read it. 
And it's a meditation on Lazarus or retelling of Lazarus's resurrection and then of Jesus's. And at the very end of the story, it has this wonderful thing where it says, we all have to say goodbye sometimes. Some of them are short goodbyes and some of them are long. Sometimes a friend of Jesus whom we love gets sick and we're sad. Sometimes, because they die, we have to say goodbye, and it feels like it's going to be a forever goodbye. Jesus knows it is sad to say goodbye, so Jesus came to end goodbyes. And then it ends with this scene of rejoicing and says, one day Jesus and all his friends will say goodbye to goodbyes forever. I just thought that was a wonderful way of putting it. Goodbye to goodbyes forever. And so I want to say to you, friends, that resurrection hope and joy surrounds your weeping and your grief in this season. And the weeping and grief of our nation in this season. It's okay to grieve and weep saying goodbye. But we do it knowing that one day with Jesus, we will say goodbye to goodbyes forever. And the second thing that this resurrection joy and hope does is that it doesn't just surround and put an end to our weeping, but it actually enters into it while we are in the process. Our grief, in a sense, is blessed and sanctified and sealed with the presence of resurrection life. Because the risen one who has defeated death draws near to us in our grief. Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Such is the nature of grief often. Sometimes it blinds us to what's right in front of us. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Notice the tenderness and the empathy of resurrected power here. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. It's a wonderful, dramatic depiction of Jesus' personal resurrected presence entering into the grief of his friend. Jesus finds Mary when Mary cannot find Jesus. Jesus sees Mary when Mary cannot see Jesus. Jesus calls out and names Mary when Mary cannot call out and name Jesus. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago who did a funeral service with only about four people because of social distancing regulations. A man in his church had died of cancer and his wife was not allowed to visit him in his final days because of the risk of potentially infecting other patients in the ward. And I talked to a woman the other week who could not be with her father as he died because of the travel restrictions. And I saw a picture the other day of people burying hundreds of unclaimed bodies of coronavirus victims. And the grief of all of it, all of it, 
facing death alone, buried alone, grieving alone. Yet, as I was reflecting on John 20, I felt as if the Lord said to me, this is what I want the world to know today. Those who die do not die alone. And they do not die without hope. And those who grieve today do not grieve alone. And they do not grieve without hope. Friends, that is the message of Easter. Not only have the grave clothes been left in the grave, not only is life the final word, not death, but resurrection life has drawn near to those who sit in the shadow of death and draw near to those who mourn and lament and grieve loss. See, the garden, the burial garden of John 20 is a place where love and loss meet. And it's precisely in that place where the new creation begins to unfold. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.